Hey, Simon here, the host of the Worship Security Academy, the podcast. And before we get into today's show, I want to tell you about our online church safety and security conference called Securing Your Place of Worship. This year, our eighth annual event is going online. Please join us September 19th and 20th, where you'll hear speakers that include Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and Dr. James Densley from the Violence Project. Now, I don't want you to miss out, so please head over to worshipsecurity.org forward slash securing your place of worship conference. Worshipsecurity.org forward slash securing your place of worship conference to learn more and to get your tickets for this online event. Remember, September 19th and 20th. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Well, Alan, I'm really excited for you to join me today. I know you've been in my Facebook group for a while and me and you have conversed back and forth for, for so many months. It feels like I know you having never met you. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And t- tell us a little bit about what you do. I know you've got better protectors. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you have a full-time job. I know that you're your security director at your church. There's so many things that you do. So start off by telling us a little bit about Alan Hughes. So my first career was in law enforcement. Um, uh, After I retired from law enforcement, I kind of got into um, human resources. And um, along the way, um, I returned to church. Now, I grew up in the church, and then I was away from it for probably 25 years. Um, I like to refer to that time as the time I was working on my testimony. And so I was, uh, I came back and as I came back into the church, um, I found that there was this whole field of uh, church safety that I knew nothing about, but because of my law enforcement background, they asked me to start getting involved. And, um, so I did, and it was probably about, I want to say six months or so into it. Um, I ended up take being asked to take over the program there and, um, I will say that it's been a transformation all along. Um, if you if you talked to me back then, eleven years ago, to today, there's a lot of things that have changed differently in me. I went into it with that law enforcement mentality and that law enforcement um, demeanor, and gradually um, it has just transformed into what I like to think of as a more mature approach and um, a more spiritually mature approach. So, I like what you said um, as well. It is for, it's for culture as well, Alan, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I like what you said there. That's, that really is. And I think it's one of the first things I say in my book is you've got to understand the, the church culture before you can really help them. Yeah, I, I agree. And so, you know, I, I eventually went into um, – being the security director um, for a uh, large multi-campus church. Um, Then I became their human resources director for a time as well, um, because I had that perfect storm of safety and human resources, and they needed both. And then uh, in January of 2022, um, my partner and I launched our training company, Better Protectors, and I left full-time ministry at that point. You know, I still serve in church safety, and we still do a lot of training for churches. But you know, I'm not working in that now um, as a as my full-time job. Instead, you know, we're doing the training, and um, I also have a job as a writer. 
Well, thank you. I know we don't necessarily have to go into your your faith journey in this podcast, but I'm interested. And in 25 years away mm. from the church, what was your biggest maybe transformation or revelation that, that brought you back? And you don't need to go into too much detail because we're, we're talking about church security, but it's interesting to to get a bit about who you are as a man as well. So um, I I have a I have a tattoo of um, uh, Luke 15:20 on my arm. And Luke 15, 20 describes um, the answer to your question. So that's in the, the um, parable of the prodigal son. And that's the, the verse where the, the father was looking off into the distance, saw the son, ran to him, embraced him, and welcomed him back in. Well, that was my dad and I. So all during that 25 years, my dad never stopped believing that I would come back to the church. And he would invite me and he would invite me. And, um, you know, I, I always had an excuse. And so finally, one day he was like, you know, just just come one time. If you come one time, I'll never ask you again. And so that weekend I did kind of roll in there. And just like in the in the parable, my dad was was looking in the parking lot. He was still believing that I would show up. Um, he saw me before I got out of my car. He was waiting at the door to, to welcome me, um, you know, and, and bring me over to seat. And true to his word, he never asked me again. I just kept coming back on my own. Um, so that that's kind of the, the quick version of how that happened. Well, and that is a bold statement for, for a Christian to make. Come one time and then uh, you don't have to come again. So I'm glad the Lord, Lord bless you. And, and that's um, pleasing for me to hear because, you know, I'm a man that grew up without a father. So anytime that I hear the call of a father, it always opens my heart. So thank you for sharing that, Alan. And I know, you know, one of your one of your loves is really about protecting people. And obviously, you know, with your company called Better Protectors, um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that the Lord has given you all the skills that he's given you to now help and serve people. And like you say, you do a lot of secular work as well. But one thing I wanted to focus our conversation on today, Alan, was about Stop the Bleed, which is um, quite new, right? I mean, it's it's not new for us that have been in around safety and security for a while, and particularly around medical response, but it's quite a new concept for, for some people. So where did your interest in Stop the Bleed come from? Um, it was really a natural extension of protecting people. Um, I've been a CPR, first aid, AED instructor for a lot of years, and this was just a natural extension of it. Um, initially, I took a course because um, you know it was available, and uh, I started to see the the not just yes, this is useful. How much useful it was on a broader context. I know a lot of times when people talk about stop the bleed, they're thinking about um, active shooter events and you know gunshots and things like that, and really. It is so much broader than that. Um, I think I think the statistic is about 20% of people that die from traumatic injuries could have been saved by uh, having their bleeding controlled. So it's one of the leading causes of preventable deaths. And so when I talk to people about you know whether they should have stop the bleed training at their church or at their workplace or their community group, you know I tell them you are so much more likely to use this than the active shooter training. This, this is around your house when somebody falls off of a ladder and their, you know, their femur comes through their, their leg and severs their femoral artery. They've got about two and a half minutes to live at that point. 
So we have to know what to do and we have to be able to do it quickly. It's the crash that happens in front of you on your way home from work. Statistically, somewhere around 80% of American adults will be in a car crash in their lifetime. There's a good chance that somebody's going to be bleeding in that. So, you know, I even read a story a few months ago about a guy that was putting a dish in the sink and it slipped, it broke, bounced up and ended up cutting him across the, uh, across the arm to the point of where he had to self-apply a tourniquet which makes me believe that I should not clean up the dishes. That, uh, well, I exactly. That's, you, yeah, you, so. but go to Home Depot and buy a dishwasher. Buy a, <laughs> um, a dishwasher. So, Alex, I guess, so let, let's take it back a step then. Mm-hmm. So I always like to try and make sure that my listeners really comprehend. Mm-hmm. So, so the difference then, so someone could be saying, well, Simon, I've done CPR training. Mm-hmm. Alan's talking about stop the bleed. How does that apply to me? What? What is the difference between someone saying, well, I've done CPR, I've got this sorted, to you saying, well, no, stop the bleed is a different course. What's the difference between some basic life safety and stop the bleed? Well, you know, again, you're looking at all kinds of different emergencies that need to happen. And for years, we for years, we learned ABCs, right? Airway, breathing, circulation. circulation that was yeah. the thing, right? In England, we used to say Dr. ABC, danger response, airways, breathing, circulation. There you go. Okay. But now... You know, we realize that it it's the the bleeding first, the massive hemorrhaging, because you know the the whole purpose of CPR is to circulate the blood, to circulate oxygen-rich blood through the body, keep the brain alive. You can go ten minutes without oxygen to the brain. You can bleed out in two and a half minutes. So we need to address that first. And that is different. You know, in, in regular first aid classes, they'll teach you, you know, pressure, you know, elevate the wound, things like that. There are simply wounds that that will not work on where we need to talk about tourniquets. We need to talk about wound packing. We need to talk about chest seals. And those are the things that, um, that a stop the bleed course addresses um, more thoroughly and, and more pointedly than in a general first aid course. And there's, I can't remember the guy's name because it just suddenly come to me, but in the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013, mm-hmm. there's a horrendous picture that you can see online. And I think it was a 21-year-old, I know it was a 21-year-old Costco worker, and they actually made mm-hmm. a movie about him. Yeah. Um, I just can't remember what his name is. And and the, the bomb had actually you know, taken off, I think he was from the knee, from the kneecap down. You know, his legs are just, gone and, and someone had applied a tourniquet then and mm-hmm. you know he actually says that without that you know that saved his life and, and i think it could have just been a belt at first you know someone didn't have a true tourniquet it just took their belt off applied it around his wounds and and kept him alive so he didn't bleed bleed out yeah and and i will and i will say that that um that's probably more miraculous than it sounds because improvised tourniquets rarely work they have a very poor track record they are better than nothing Mm. And, and and I'm not saying that they can't work. They just have a much lower success rate than using a proper tourniquet. So yes, it can be improvised, but that many improvised uh, tourniquets that was um, that was a little more miraculous than that it was. Yeah, yeah. there was God in there as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For, for for sure there was because the other miraculous thing, and I don't know why his name. It eludes me because I do training on this as well. But what was more miraculous is that he was the guy that actually saw the two Boston Marathon bombers. Mm-hmm. And he saw them with the heavy backpack. He saw them keep putting it down. 
Um, they had no interest in the race. They were turning around. They, they were dressed different than everyone else. He saw all the indicators. Um, and his regret is a great 60-minute um, video on this, on 60 minutes on YouTube, where he said, if only I'd gone to one of the police officers and said, this is what I've seen, you know, mm -hmm. would the day have been any different? And, and that's, uh, you know, like I said, he was 21 years old, Costco worker. That was a lot on his conscience to say, if only I'd walked over and said, I see these behavior indicators, just letting you know, officer, would, would things have been been different? So I think that's why... There was a miraculous miracle for him to tell that tale because there's a, you can't get a stronger stance on why you should not ignore your instincts as mm -hmm. as to listen to that that poor guy. But anyway, we're, we're digressing into like behavior indicators now, which means you could talk about sure. all day. But yes, we're we going to talk about bleed, yeah. So, um, so I mean, like as an example, you know, having a belt mm -hmm. is okay, but it's not you know favored. That's mostly going to be the exception rather than rule. Uh, what would you say in today's world, you know, the year that we live in, um, it's a crazy world out there. What would, what should people have in their car, um, you know, in their, a woman in their purse? What, what should we be carrying with us in today's world to, to be ready? Well, you know, at a minimum, um, we're talking about tourniquets, but tourniquets are only part of the answer in terms of stop the bleed. So you have three different, three different, um, uh, pieces of equipment in that stop the bleed uh, arsenal, tourniquets, wound packing material, and chest seals, because they're all for different parts of the body. Tourniquets only work on the limbs. So if the if the wound is in the chest, the tourniquet does nothing for you. If the if the wound is in the leg, the tourniquet is the great answer for you. Um, if it's in a junctional area. Like the um, like in the shoulder junction, in the pelvis, things like that. Then you're doing wound packing with wound packing material, and then if it's anywhere in what we call the box, so basically from the shoulder blades to the waist, that torso area, that's going to be chest seals. So having all three of those in a easy to grab, you know, one grab it and go thing is is the ideal. That's not. That's not very realistic for a lot of people. Now, I carry a um, an ankle medical kit that um, that goes on the ankle, and it has wound packing material. It has a, a tourniquet. It has um, chest seals, and also some small shears and things like that. Not everybody's going to do that, and I get that. So, at the minimum, I I at least ask people carry a tourniquet carry a tourniquet, even if you aren't even trained with it, start carrying a tourniquet today so that if you are somewhere and someone who does know how to use it doesn't have one, you can give it to them. Or if yeah, they need a second one. <laughs> but yeah, or, or maybe even a third one, who knows? Yeah. But, and, and I think the, you know, when we look at this, for people listening to this podcast, you know, if you go back 10, 15, maybe probably 20 years, the thought of carrying these things, actually, maybe it could even be seven or eight years, you know, the thought of carrying these things well, was definitely not at the forefront oh, of people's mind. But I mean, as, as where we are now, I mean, for me, living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I mean, I have to turn the news off. My two sons, mm -hmm. nine and 12, can't really watch the news because every day here, someone's being shot. There's some type of stray bullet going in a house, you know, I mean, watching the news is just depressing, depressing, but right. it does tell you the stark reality of the world that we live in and carrying the things that you're talking about, Alan, is becoming more prominent because we're, we're, we're seeing these things more and more, whether we like to believe it or not. 
um, you know, you turn on the news and this is happening in every city across the U.S. Well, and, and even, even medically speaking, so 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the, the general consensus was tourniquets were a last resort. If you put a tourniquet, the, the, the conventional wisdom was if you put a tourniquet on, they're going to lose that limb. So this should be the very last thing that you do. And that was just misguided. Um, that, was a, that was a set of facts that really came about during the Civil War, um, where pretty much you lost a limb no matter what anyway, if you were wounded. Um, and you know they weren't getting treatment for days and days after putting that tourniquet on. So they were losing it for gangrene and other infections and things like that, where we learned a lot in the um, in the, the war in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and we have learned the importance of early, almost immediate um, intervention with tourniquets and how important they can be, even to the point of self-aid, you know, where you're you're applying it to your your own limb to uh, you know so that the rest of the unit can carry on and. Honestly, you can carry on with a tourniquet to a degree. Um, you can still move around. You know, I've I've put a tourniquet on and then continued teaching just so that people could see that you can still function. Of course, you're you know you're seeking um, more advanced aid at that point, but you know you're not just out of it at that at that point just because there's a tourniquet on. And I know uh, my friend Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He mm -hmm offers numbers you know he actually says but tourniquets are one of the reasons why the murder rate in the u.s has gone down because people are doing such a good job of keeping people alive you know so i mean yeah. he he takes the stats to a different level and says tourniquets are reducing the murder rate because you know five six ten years ago these people would have been dying but now we're slapping tourniquets on people and they're and they're surviving these, these gun wounds so it's interesting same the same in our military um, you know, the, the advances, not just in tourniquets, but chest seals, wound packing, the immediacy of care that, that can be, um, you know, obtained has, has dramatically dropped the death rate in, in combat. And, and so, so we're, we're just, we're simply taking what we've learned in those environments and we're applying it to the, um, you know, to the civilian environment. Yeah. And I want to cover something for a moment. So you mentioned, the tourniquet and sort of packing the wound. Um, I mean, should someone find themselves in a situation where they don't have some of these things? I know there's a lot of kits out there, and I think when this podcast release, I don't know if you sell this stuff, Alan, or, or or if you can recommend someone, but we'll put some links where people can buy this stuff. But in relation to, to packing the wound, what's some advice you'd give, Alan, if someone finds himself in a situation of everybody thinking, again, this is never going to happen to me, but it's happening right. to people every day in, in the US. So um, we want to make sure they're listening. But what advice would you give about packing the wound? Um, obviously, the first, the first piece of advice is get training. Get somebody to actually show it to you. Um, there are some good videos available that you can find on wound packing. I, I will tell you this, it is not pretty. It is, um, it's yucky and sticky and you are literally putting your fingers down into the wound to find the source of the bleeding and shoving the, the gauze in there as tightly as you can to compress an artery against a bone. So it is, it is not pretty. It is not something where you're going to put that tourniquet on, crank it down, and okay, you're done. 
it's going to take you a minute and it's going to be, um, it's going to be an experience you will never forget doing. Yeah. I like that you said that because it's reminded me when I was a young police officer back in England, I think the stop the bleed gives you the reality of how difficult the situation is. And I was a young police officer. I think I was 20 years old where I was driving down the road and I saw a person on a bicycle and he, fell to the floor and I sort of saw it in my rear view mirror. I sort of turned around and the gentleman had had a heart attack. And I was most probably six months out of the police academy in England. And then straight away I was there, and this was in 1999, this most probably was Alan. And it was um, doing mouth to mouth without a mouth guard on someone real life. <laughs> Wasn't what I did in police training. And sorry if you're having your coffee or eating, listening to this, I was spitting the mucus out of my mouth to apply my lips again to do the breath. And it was one of the most horrible things I've ever had to do. And I've seen some bad, bad things in the police. So I think the, the training that prepares you for that, and that wasn't, I mean, we were doing the recess, Annie, and it was such a controlled environment we were doing in training to, to then do it in real life. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I was, I was trained, but I wasn't prepared. And I think that's what the Stop the Bleed will give you. It'll, it'll train you, but also prepare you for the reality of what the situation is, because it's not nice, Alan, is it? No, it's, um, it's not. And, um, you know, I've, I've said this before, um, you know, over, over the course of my time in the military and my time in law enforcement, I've seen a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of violent things. I've seen a lot of um, pretty ugly things. I was a traffic homicide investigator, so I've seen some um, some pretty gruesome um, scenes. But if there is one thing that will wake me up in the middle of the night, it was that time that I tried to do CPR on an infant and was unsuccessful. Mm, yeah. Um, and and I try to talk about that in classes to to understand ahead of time that it won't always work. They won't always come back. CPR won't always work. The tourniquet won't always work. You just have to understand that going into it. And to me, being able to, at the end of the day, look in the mirror and go, I did the best I could with the skills that I had, with what God gave me, and the rest of it was in his hands. Yeah, that is. Yeah, And, and it, kind of let it, yourself off the hook. You know? Yeah, you, you do. And on that story that I gave, I mean, the, the guy survived. Um, I went to visit him in hospital, and he said, um, Officer Osimo said, I'm a strong old man. It would take more than that to, to kill me. And I said, well, at least I'm grateful that I was there. It could help you. And I went back to hospital a couple of days later to find out where it was, and it had had another heart attack and died. Oh so, so, so the, the, the law took it, the law took him home, but it wasn't always that case. I think it was most probably six months later or a year later. Alan, I was first on scene at was an attempted murder that turned into a murder, and the woman died in my arm, arms. And again, similar to you, you know, that that is not. I was most probably twenty one. I think when that happened, you know, a woman that you don't know dying in your arms. I mean, that was also an experience as well, you know, after after doing what you can to keep her alive. I mean, those are memories that stick with you for forever. So I think we've really drawn the people always think, oh, Simon Allen, you get you get us all depressed now. It's like yeah, but yeah. It, we're, we're trying to stress the importance of med medical because 
when we work with churches, Alan, everyone wants to go to the sexy stuff. It's firearms, right. it's, it's combative training. But you and I know that the likelihood is you're going to be applying, you know, a, a Band-Aid to someone mm-hmm. or or someone's fainted and stuff. So, so medical for me is outside of conflict de-escalation. It's, your, it's in your top two, depending how you want to say mm-hmm. conflict de-escalation and medical, really. That's, that's really where we need to spend our time, right? Yeah, I've I have um, I have never used my nine millimeter inside of a church. I have used a AED inside of a church, so um, you know there there's that. Uh, and yes, um, it can sound depressing sometimes, but in the end, it's it's encouraging. It's encouraging because we we know so much more than we knew twenty five years ago. We know so yes. much more than we knew ten years ago, and. It's not hard. And I have never had a student in a stop to bleed class that in two hours was not able to apply a tourniquet to themselves one handed in under 30 seconds from people that had never touched a tourniquet ever in their life. They could apply a tourniquet and save their own life in 30 seconds. And that's what I that's what I tell people is sometimes it's not even about saving that random stranger, you know, if you're afraid of liability, you're afraid of blood, you're afraid of disease, whatever that is, that's, that's your decision. But how about save yourself? How about save your family, people that you love, people that you are supposed to be protecting? And this is a, such an easy way to learn those skills and be ready to, you know, counteract what is such a, uh, you know, such a common cause of death, which is just massive uncontrolled bleeding. Yeah. And the woman that I um, talked about, you know, I mean, having a woman die in your arms is not a pleasant experience as a police officer. But I can remember that there was a couple of young guys there that could have been 18, 19. I mean, I was a young, young police officer anyway, and they were just a little bit younger than me. And, and they said, you know, what is it you need us to do? And it was before you even had these pack wounds, it's like, you just got to get your hands mm-hmm. over there and just like yeah. pack, pack this wound. And um, they, I can't remember it's in scripture, but the, the verse that says, send me, I mean, they, they mm-hmm. stood up and said, tell us what it is that you need to do. But these, mm-hmm. these courses are so realistic and there's so much out there to try and simulate that stress. Um, you know, they're, they're really great. So Alan, I know you're down in Florida and you teach this and Stop the Bleed isn't necessarily something where someone can say, hey, Alan, fly into to LA and do this. But wh- where can oh, people find... We'll, we'll travel. Uh, <laughs> well, you, well, you, well, you will travel, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll go travel. anywhere. Yeah. Um, um, typically, the there are, typically, there are people um, in, in every area that are able to teach it. Um, so it's probably... We're probably not your, your um, most economical bet. But yeah, uh, yeah we, go, we go anywhere to teach that. And, and we love to teach it. Um, and so where should they go? Is it like stoptheBleed.com or .org? Or so um, the, um, actually, the Stop the Bleed is, is a trademark, and it, it's owned by the Department of Defense. Um, they're, the, they're the ones that oversee this program. And so they also have what is called the, um, the Commission uh, or the Committee for Tactical Emergency Care, and they have a um, – on their website, I'll give you the the link to it. Um, they have a list of people that are approved educational providers. I, I would say be careful um, if they're on that list, then they are they are vetted. 
there are a lot of people that will tell you uh, we can teach stop the bleed because they took a class or you know they they um, took an extra hour module at the the Red Cross or something like that, and it's not quite the same. Um, so I would say be be careful. Um, get an instructor that is vetted. There's only a handful of organizations that can actually certify uh, instructors in the first place. So, you know, I, I would say looking at the um, the link that I'll send you is a good good place to start. And I mean, I'd like to end, Alan, just talking a little bit about the, the mindset. There could be a few doubters and doubters, doubting Thomases that say, well, if I get involved here and something goes wrong, am I going to be held liable? And no, you know, each state here in the US is like it's many country and, and there's different sort of good samaritan laws and stuff but i mean what what would you say to someone if they're hesitant thinking well if something goes wrong am i going to be held accountable i mean obviously they, they need to step into this because it keeps people alive but what would you say to people that could be apprehensive wondering if something goes wrong what's going to happen to me yeah i would say uh, first of all it's it's sad that we have to we have to question whether it's okay to do the right thing um but that is the environment that we're in almost as to my knowledge, all 50 states have some form of a Good Samaritan law, but in general, you're looking at the reasonable standard uh, is the reasonable man standard is what they're looking at. If you are, if you're doing it as you know voluntarily, so you're not you're not a doctor, you're not a nurse, you're not doing it as a profession. If you are voluntarily trying to help someone in an emergency and you're acting in good faith and you don't exceed the standards that you've been trained to or exceed what a reasonable person would do, you will be generally covered from, from lawsuits. So when we talk about, you know, exceeding your, the scope of your training um, or exceeding what would be reasonable, you know, just because you've seen on TV, somebody, you know, cut a hole in somebody's throat and put a straw in there, no, that's that'll probably get you sued. And, and yeah. as your instructor, I'm not going to come there and help you out in court. But, you know, trying to apply a tourniquet, you know, trying to stop the bleeding, things like that, even CPR, where you might get ribs dislocated or broken or things like that. I, I can't think of a case that I have seen in the past 10 years where the Good Samaritan Law did not cover somebody who was acting reasonably within the scope of their training. Yeah, and people are going into it with the, with the right intentions, aren't they? So, well, Alan, I mean, like I said, me and you have mostly conversed back and forth. It could be at least a couple of years within various different Facebook groups. It's been great to actually spend some time with you, get to know you a little bit more and, and share some of your wisdom around medicals and, and stop the bleed. So thank you for joining me. So if there's one thing that I could I could kind of throw in there before we part is please don't get caught with fake tourniquets. There are so many tourniquets out there that if you go onto Amazon or something like that and you it looks like one of the approved tourniquets, it it seems like it, and it's much cheaper than some of the, the brand ones that, that we're talking about. I would caution you, please, please do not fall for that. It is not worth it. Um, they're unproven, they're unproven designs, the the materials. Um, the Velcro, the, uh, the, the materials that are actually doing the constricting, they have different standards in China and things like that. It's, 
this is a piece of life-saving equipment. If you want to buy a knockoff Louis Vuitton bag, awesome. Don't buy a knockoff tourniquet. It's $25 to $30. It's a piece of life-saving equipment. This isn't the place that you save pennies. Thank <laughs> you.